Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Chancy, and today I'm here with uh, my guest, who is a business broker, David Jacobs. David is out of California, Northern California, and he works in the business brokerage primarily in the uh, lower middle market space, which are revenues between three and $20 million. And he has some specialty niches, which we're going to talk about a little today, which uh, are kind of from his experience. So he took his experiences in another world and brought it into the business brokerage space and then uses that to help uh, certain businesses be able to transact more efficiently. So, David, appreciate you jumping on the podcast today with us and uh, looking forward to, to hearing about your business and your expertise. Well, thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's nice to be here with you. Absolutely. Good stuff. So first and foremost, I guess, uh, tell me when you made the transition to the business brokerage world and how did you pick the firm that you partnered with? Yeah. So um, uh, after spending about 20 years in the enterprise software world, I, uh, I took over a family business and uh, grew up pretty large. And in my mid 40s, I realized that um, it's not what I wanted to do for the remaining 20 years of my life. So uh, made the transition into business brokering uh, a little over three years ago. And um, it's just been a great match. And I feel like uh, one of the unique things I can bring is that I've been the seller of a small business. So, uh, you know, I understand the, the journey of the seller, which is uh, fraught with all kinds of uh, more emotional than technical challenges. <laughs> I have heard that many, many times for many brokers. That's how they got into the business. They sold a business themselves and they're like, hey, this might be the next opportunity for me here, right? Exactly. So you were in the software business and sold a software company. Uh, no, so I spent um, 20 years in enterprise software, and I worked with uh, worked at Oracle, and then Siebel Systems, um, BMC Remedy, and then Sousa Linux, and then I uh, made a career change and took over a family business uh, selling commercial printing. So we sold catalog work across the country. Um, I saw an opportunity to develop some software that gave us just a huge advantage, and uh, we grew into be the third largest brokerage in the country when I had 35 employees at the time, mostly because of what the capabilities of the software was. And in my mid-40s, when I realized that uh, while we were still growing modestly and the printing business was completely falling apart after the 2008 recession, you know, it wasn't going to carry me the next 20 years of my career. And if I wanted to make a change, I was advised to make a change before I turned 50. So I tried to find a broker to help me. And uh, none of the brokers that I met really could understand what the software was doing. And, you know, we were print brokers, but the software was a key part of our competitive advantage. And um, I ended up having to sell it myself. And it's just, it's a very opaque and confusing process from the outside if you've never been through it. And um, it took me a year and a half. I finally found a buyer and um, we put together, a, you know, what we thought was a good deal for both parties. And I'd had some loyal employees that I wanted to make sure they were given at least a year. So we negotiated employment contracts and, you know, inked the deal. And I was, I guess, free of that uh, phase of my life. And then um, got a random cold call from a guy named Raj who had just bought the Link franchise for Northern California. And uh, he had had a similar journey of corporate experience and going out on his own and trying to sell a business and mix success with the brokers that were out there. And he felt there was an opportunity to really professionalize the, the practice of being a business broker and he wanted to talk to me about joining him and uh, setting up a technology practice. So 
Um, we spoke on the phone and really hit it off. And it's just been a great switch for me. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you know, I think no matter how old school or new school the business is, I think we've, what we're all starting to learn is, is good data and good analytics, right? It can help, can help drive or power a business, even if it's something that's old school, maybe is printing or whatnot, right? Like it's just, it's having better data. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, I had been in the software business and that's, um, that's its own game, uh, full of a lot of rocket fuel and um, a lot of explosions on launch, which, you know, anybody who's been in Silicon Valley realizes. And I always thought there was an opportunity to take uh, the technology piece and apply it to an old school business where the competition isn't necessarily so sophisticated and get yourself a huge advantage. Uh, you know, that's what I was able to do with the printing. We were winning something like five or 7% of the quotes we sent out, which was typical of the industry. And after the software was up and running for about nine months and we had enough data in our database, um, you know, our win rates were up in the 80% range. And that's, that's why we were able to bring on clients. And, you know, I would tell people that if I quote this job for you, you, you may or may not choose to print with me, but I know it's going to be an eye-popping quote because I'll know exactly uh, who owns the right equipment to source your, the work for you. And I think that idea of applying software to old school businesses is applicable across many, many industries. And they're always kind of, they're interesting founders, right? They, they take a traditional industry and kind of take a new twist on it. And uh, they're fun to work with. And it, their journey is always an interesting story to hear. So that's part of what keeps the job interesting. Absolutely. I know, uh, I know an HVAC guy that um, implemented Uber's proximity technology to their vans. And so if anybody called, they instantly knew the closest van to that location. And they made mm-hmm. a guarantee about how quick that van could be there or the service call was free. Right. And their business exploded with that one little nugget of information. Right. Right. Yep. just exploded because they're yep. like, nobody would ever call another person for another quote. If you know that your AC guy is going to be there in 47 minutes or the service calls free, you don't call anybody else. You right. know what I'm no, saying? That's the last call you make. It's the last call, call you, you make. And, and everybody else after that never got a phone call and their business right. exploded. So old school business, new school technology, stick it together. Boom. Right. 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 So yeah. Amazing. And good on you for seeing that opportunity and figuring out how to monetize it. Right. Thank you. So, well, that's awesome. So you met with this, met with Raj, you joined link brokerage, right? And so I'm assuming that relationship is still persists today. It's still something you guys oh, yeah. are doing. Yeah. Right? So in California, you know, we're regulated like commercial real estate and um, uh, the brokers have to be with a firm. So, you know, there's four large firms across the country and link is one of them. And uh, what attracted me to link besides it was mostly Raj is that um, you know they they give me a fair amount of autonomy to do my own thing and develop my own type of business and my approach and I thought you know the marketing materials were very professional and the contracts were straightforward and fair and um, it just seemed to be like a very ethical firm to go with so you know I'm still here and it's still working great for me. There you go. Hey, it's all about finding the right landing spot, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, good stuff. Glad you found glad you found the right spot for you. So, for the people, for the listeners that are on today, like let's talk a little bit about the business market. I know, I, you know, I know this, but quickly, you said you're in the lower middle market. So, describe to people what is the lower middle market because I think beneath it's like there's a Main Street space below it. So, explain what Main Street is and explain what lower middle market is and why that space is a good fit for you. Sure. And I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, I really differentiate the two segments of the business brokerage market by who the buyer is. Okay. And I'm just better with a, a lower middle market buyer. And I'll tell you why. A Main Street is the smaller end. So generally companies up to about $2, $3 million in revenue. And they generally sell for under $5 million. 
And these are mostly retail locations, restaurants, bars, liquor stores, uh, might be a dry cleaner, a small construction company, uh, auto repair, those types of uh, businesses. And usually uh, there's an owner operator. So the person who owns the business shows up and works at the business each day. And when these businesses transact, they're typically uh, financed with an SBA loan. Um, an SBA, the SBA has a loan limit of $5 million. So already there's the ceiling of the transaction. Yeah. In the lower middle market, these are businesses that are, they might have the same revenue, usually three to $20 million. So, you know, they're bigger, um, but not necessarily so much bigger, but what would differentiate a lower middle market um, business from a services or a, um, a main street business is a lower middle market business has, uh, can scale, right? So it might be a software company doing $3 million, but they could sell their software all over the world. And it could conceivably be a 20 or $50 million market. There's no geographical limitations on right. it like some exactly. of the other, like a restaurant's only going to service customers from so far, right? Exactly. So, you know, one of my things is a lot of my clients I've never actually met in person and there's no reason to go to a software office, right? You can do it sure. all over Zoom. There's nothing to physically see. It's not like there's a restaurant or a warehouse to take a look at. Makes um, sense. And the types of buyers that buy these businesses are different. So unlike an owner operator that's going to buy a main street business and is essentially buying himself a job, right? I'm going to buy my, I've always wanted to, you know, own a restaurant or, you know, I've always dreamed of owning an ice cream shop by the beach and I want to go and serve ice cream to people. Wait a minute. Um, I've always owned, wanted to own an ice cream shop yeah. by the beach. That's well, a nice thing? thing by the beach, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> The, Two uh, great things, ice cream and the beach. I'm like, how, you can got you, it. how can you argue with that? You can't miss with that. Um, the lower middle market people are trying to buy a smaller business and grow it into a, a what is called a middle market business. So, gotcha. you know, as the businesses grow, not only are they generating more revenue and more income, um, but the multiples that are used to value the businesses will expand. So, you know, maybe a lower middle market, you would buy it, let's say five times earnings. If you could grow that into a middle market sized business, you might be looking at selling it at seven or eight times earnings. Sure. So it's a different type of buyer. And typically the businesses, uh, they sell for more. So you need access to more capital. So they have, they've essentially raised capital from some type of institution or a family yeah. office. More sophisticated capital structure than just SBA financing. Yes. Yeah. And it's usually, um, the businesses are usually actually growing beyond the ability to kind of manage by walking around. The, usually the buyers have some kind of uh, financial sophistication where they're comfortable running a business from the financial statements and spreadsheets as opposed to kind of walking around and seeing what people are do, doing because the scale is getting beyond just being able to walk around. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. I've never actually heard that perspective on it. That's an interesting point of view or perspective to look at it. It's almost like analogous to being an airline pilot and flying by visual sight or knowing how to fly by your instruments, right? Exactly. I guess, you know, I'm not a pilot, but I would think in a jet, things are probably happening too fast to fly by sight. You got to look, yeah. look at the instruments and see what's coming. So yeah, I would say just... these lower middle market businesses are similar. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's a neat analogy that I think people can kind of wrap their mind around. So all right, so lower middle market businesses, you know, we've got to grow those and we like stuff that's in the in the technology space. So, you know, what are the opportunities for business today? I would say based on from the outside looking in, you know, we've seen a big push with COVID, right? And everybody right now, we're talking about how the pandemic has affected businesses. There were some that took off. There were some that didn't do so well. There was a lot of unintended consequences or things we didn't think would happen that would happen, Right. right. How's that affected your business, both positive and or negative? 
Um, you know, I, I don't deal with much with retail sector, which has really been hurt by COVID. Sure. Um, most of my clients, the business, you know, they're, they're all growth because they're all technology based. And, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying in technology. Sure. But, um, you know, it's not uncommon for them to have doubled. I was just talking to somebody the other day and they had a business that really benefited from uh, the whole COVID. And I mean, they're up 250% from the year before. So, you know, very rapid growth. You know, I guess COVID's been a pandemic that's hurt the world, but it's been good for certain businesses. And, you know, a lot of my clients, which are either software companies or software enabled, have uh, really benefited from the, the changing purchasing patterns and how people are working more remotely and um, are using software to do a lot of the things that used to be done in person. Yeah, makes sense. Are there any specific verticals or whatever that, I mean, is it things that are related to, and I'm just trying to get a flavor for it. Like, are you seeing things that are technology enabled around like communications? Like, for example, we've got the 5G shift going on with our cell phones and all that technology now. Are we seeing stuff in, in medical technology that's that's moving much faster? Like I've even, to give you an example, I've seen a lot of um, what I would call I guess retail technology or or like for example, a lot of restaurants in, in the quick service or the you know fast food restaurant spaces, mm-hmm. they know they've had trouble with employees, right? It's been hard to get that service worker for that type of industry. So there's been a lot of spend on technology and automation. And how do we service as many customers while using less human capital to be able to do that, right? Creating for right. efficiencies. So are there any specific verticals you're seeing that are taking off a little faster than others? You know, I would say that most of the clients that I talk to, which is really just based on my past experience in the enterprise software world, the corporate world, are really focused on business type applications. So, um, you know, I've, I've talked to people that have all kinds of, uh, I call them a widget. It's not really a widget because it's a full software application, but they look at kind of online shopping cart behavior and try to predict who's abandoning, who's not abandoning, who do you need to offer a coupon to at the last minute to get them to click the buy it now button. So lots of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, the areas around uh, recruiting. So I'd also work with a, like a recruiting firm and there's a number of them here applying all different levels of artificial intelligence type technology to find candidates. And some are just doing exceptionally well these days. So uh, they've really benefited from the use of technology and you know, with employees so hard to find these days because of the pandemic, um, they seem to be able to source candidates very quickly. And they're you know not only sourcing technical candidates for like VC-backed startups, which is always a you know, a business out here, but there are people uh, in Arizona that I've spoken to that are using very similar technology to uh, recruit warehouse workers. And they're able to, through online profiles, you know, really narrow down who who does that type of work. And, you know, maybe there's some vacation photos and now they think, well, the person's had enough vacation. Maybe they're looking to go back to work and earn a little money and kind of highlights the list of who to reach out to right now that might be open to a job. So, um, you know, all kinds of very interesting applications of artificial intelligence technology, you know, a lower middle market scale that um, is producing real results. Yeah, I could imagine that that process would be overwhelming if you're an HR manager and you're having to screen a whole bunch of resumes to try to find the right candidates for the job. I mean, that could be monotonous and redundant, like over mm-hmm. and over. So to have an AI thing that says, you know, screen for this, screen for this, screen for this, and give me those type candidates like to to create some efficiency in the process. I could certainly see where that would, uh, you yeah. know, make a substantial difference. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other thing is they can look back through like there's um, they're scanning through your HR records and trying to predict which employees might accept the job and start and then resign very quickly to try to make sure that you know the hires and the offers that you do put out are offers that are likely to stick. 
Interesting. Yeah, I've, I've heard of that as well, too. People, there's tests that HR managers will put people through sometimes, things like the Colby's and the Myers Briggs and the other stuff to test for aptitude and skill, you know, or how they're wired for certain positions. And I've heard them say, Yeah, you'll be bored in this position for too long a time. And you're like, How can you know that I'm going to be bored with this job? You know, like, yeah. so. Uh, interesting, very interesting information. So with where we're at now, you know, where is this going and how is this ultimately affecting your business? It sounds like you're in a part of the country where all of this is really happening and there's more and more growth in this space, you know, um, because technology is certainly not good. I think this internet thing's here to stay, right? Uh, it seems to have some traction, yeah. It, see, it seems to have some legs to it at this point, yeah. right? So, so I don't think it's a fad. I don't think it's a fad at this point. I don't think it's a fad. You know, we were talking about crypto with someone earlier and, you know, I feel like to me and you're you're in my age range. So we're going to this is going to today. Crypto feels like what Pets.com felt like in 1999. Right. Yeah. A little bit. Right. A little bit. There's a lot of hype going on, but I think there is something there and it'll sort itself out. And, you know, I'd be surprised in 100 a hundred years from now, if people actually reach into their pocket for a piece of paper that they call a dollar bill, right? They're just going to sure click on their phone or whatever they're carrying around. It seems kind of antiquated. Sure, sure. It's just, it seems really early in that game, though. You right. know what I'm saying? A lot of hype. A lot of hype, right? Like all the all the stuff in 1999 was going to stick for stay forever and change the world. And it did 10, 15 years later when it became, right. when there was real utility to it, right? Exactly. Exactly. So funny in a, in a weird space. Very interesting. So, so what would, if, if a client was going, so let's assume your ideal client is watching this podcast, listening to this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. What are the type of things that those people should know to prepare themselves to come and have a conversation with you? Why are they not just coming out? Are they, are they scared? Are they nervous? They think they're not qualified to talk to somebody like you. They think they can do it themselves. Like get in the headspace of somebody that should be having a conversation with you. Why should they be doing it or why are they not doing it? So I, I think that there's a, there's a number of high-level things that should be thought of before you embark on a transaction doing it yourself. Um, you know, when I sold my business, I had to do it myself because I couldn't find anybody that I felt like I could connect with that understood my goals and objectives. So just that personal connection, I think, is paramount to any type of a professional relationship. And, you know, being able to package the business, yeah, it's kind of mechanical, but also... Uh, does your broker understand your business the same way you do? And, you know, do they appreciate what you consider to be special? And do they think the issues that, uh, you know, are maybe not so flattering about the business can be worked around or are there deal breakers? And uh, just, you know, finding somebody that uh, thinks like you, that can work with you, um, because as you get into the transaction and you start to deal with the buyers, especially the buyers in the lower middle market, I mean, nobody's spending 10, 20, 30 million dollars unless they're really bright and very detail oriented, they're going to uncover, let's say, less flattering information. And um, you got to be comfortable with your broker that they're going to be able to, you know, work with the buyer and you and kind of work through these bumps in the road um, in order to get a deal done. Because all, you know, all companies have um, great things and less than flattering things and the less than flattering things will surface and you just need to be with the right person who you trust to uh, put the best foot forward and describe it in, you know, the most positive way. Sure, sure. How much um, I've heard other business brokers before people in the space talk about audited financials and stuff like that. How important is that in your opinion? On You know, in my space, we don't really do much audited financials. The companies aren't that big. I mean, even a $20 million company is not so large that the financials are going to be so complicated. And right. the source of truth is really the federal tax returns. So, you know, you should be prepared to show federal tax returns. 
Um, you should be very prepared to talk about if there's any deviation significant from your internal financial statements. And uh, I would say, you know, the biggest kind of proof is going to be they're going to look at what you claim is revenue on your federal tax returns and look at the cash that showed up in your bank account month by month for the past three years. And if those tie out, then it's there's no real reason to go through audited financials. Makes sense. Makes sense. Totally get it. How about, you know, do you look into, so I've on my side of the ledger, I look at deals sometimes if I'm going to have counterparties or something we're involved in, we're doing background checks on people to, you know, uh, the information is only as good as the person that's given it to us, right? Right. Um, trust, but verify. So, you know, what type of information are we looking to on the potential backgrounds of potential sellers and or potential buyers to make sure that they're legitimate and they're forthright and they're being completely honest when they're coming into the transaction? action. I mean, you can never guarantee that, right? But, right. but you can uh, try to make a best faith effort that this person doesn't have a history of telling, you know, little white lies all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's really a, it's a transaction between people. Um, and there's got to be trust between the parties because uh, unlike purchasing a, you know, stock or bond as an investment, a business is a living thing and people show up to work every day and they do their thing and that creates value and revenue and, you know, you pay them with expenses you know, it's a people business. And if you don't like the people, there's really no reason to go forward because you won't be successful without the buy-in of the, uh, the seller. Um, yeah. And then I would also say that, um, you know, the, the reputation and quality of the buyer is also important. Very rarely do these deals close as an all cash transaction. There's usually some kind of a seller note or an earnout, And, uh, you know, just like the buyer wants to be sure that the business is as described, uh, the seller wants to make sure they're going to get paid what they're owed. So, you know, we always try to do some background checks on both parties and make sure that everybody comes with a, you know, a good reputation. And if there's some blemishes, they can be explained sure. um, in a very straightforward way. You know, in the lower middle market where I operate, um, usually the businesses transact at such a value, it's beyond the range of an SBA type loan. So the, the buyer is typically part of an institution and that makes the due diligence process easier. You know, they're part of a private equity firm or a family office or a large corporate uh, publicly traded company. So that that kind of makes it a little easier on the buyer due diligence side. Sure. No, absolutely makes sense. And look, you know, if you're going to be part of an earn out or a seller note, you're in business with that person for the next few years. You want to know the type of person you're in business with, right? So exactly. it's not like you just took the transaction off of their hands and you're like, yeah, I got it from here. Don't worry. You know, right. Yeah, no, you give me a problem. check. I'll give you the keys is a, is a red flag all around. So all the way around. Yeah, totally understand that. Totally understand that. So what are some of the biggest obstacles to people selling businesses today? What are the biggest challenges to that happening? You know, if you look at the industry in general, I think the, uh, the statistic that's floated around is something like 80% of businesses that are brought to market fail to sell. It's very hard. And, you know, this is a, this is a very valuable asset that people have, maybe their largest, even more than their house. Uh, the fact that it, you know, they might not be able to find a buyer and just have to wind it down is uh, could be pretty devastating financially. The biggest reason that businesses fail to sell is um, unrealistic expectations on the part of the seller. So, you know, we're we're surrounded by the news media that talks about, you know, Facebook just bought this company for a hundred times revenue, or you know, Microsoft bought such and such for billions of dollars, and um, it's really important to look in kind of the lower middle market or the the middle market or the main street, you know, wherever your business is in terms of size and industry and kind of see what other transactions have looked like. And, you know, I'm very happy to share that I have access to a database. Sure. So, you know, we want to set expectations and 
Uh, you know, we always try to get more than the kind of the asking price. The asking price is a floor. Um, and I do that through trying to create competition. But um, this idea that you're going to have an inflated asking price and then negotiate down isn't actually how these, uh, this industry works. And the inflated asking price really scares away um, the qualified buyers, meaning the buyers that have access to enough capital, sure. um, because they have plenty of money. They don't have time. And if you appear to be an unreasonable seller, they're not even going to begin the uh, time-consuming process of due diligence, only to have you, you know, walk away from the deal at the last minute after they've invested hundreds of hours. So, getting the asking price right, and then, you know, I always try to make a, an introductory call between the parties early on in the process so they can meet each other and decide if they like and trust each other. That seems to uh, allow me to close deals, and you know, if the business is big enough, my success rate is 100%. So. I do pride myself on getting deals done. Sure. I understand that hundred percent. I had to, I've told two people that today I go, Oh, they're like, Hey, you want to partner on this deal? You want to partner on that deal? I'm like, no, in both cases. They're like, why? I'm like, cause I heard you explain it and the time it's going to take me to do there, the juice isn't worth the squeeze because the pre-framing on the whole thing is wrong. It's going to mm -hmm. take me so long to unwind it and retrain everybody about how it should come back together. I'm like, just don't want to deal with it. Not my circus, not my monkeys, right? I like it. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, it's a funny place. You've always heard that old axiom, you know, it's, uh, you know, money you can make more of, but time you can't, right? Exactly. And that it doesn't mean anything until you, until it does. And then when it does, you're like, no. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say that, uh, you know, unrealistic sellers attract unqualified buyers. They're attracting the buyers that have plenty of time and no capital. So, you know, They'll spend your hours, but when it comes to actually writing a check, they don't have it. That's a good little, that's a good little saying right there. I've never heard that before, but I like it. Unrealistic sellers attract unqualified buyers. Right. That's a good one right there. That's a good, that's a little nugget right there. <laughs> hashtag. Right. Hashtag. <laughs> I like it. All right. Um, well, look, tell me if I missed anything, if I left anything out, David, you what, what should a guy like me be asking a guy like you? What are we, what is the part of the secret sauce? Let us, you know, what. Well, you know, I would say that um, uh, any type of a software, software enabled or services business that's running, you know, three to 20 million in revenue and is either break even or profitable and you're thinking maybe now's the time to sell, maybe two, three years, you know, I'm happy to have a conversation and invest 10, 15 minutes to get to know you and understand the story. And one thing that I, you know, while I was, why I was excited to talk to you, Matt, is that um, uh, there can be very large tax consequences from these transactions. And, um, you know, early on, I always uh, uh, try to engage with a CPA and an attorney to make sure that uh, my client's expectations are, are set. I'm a big believer in exit planning, and obviously the tax component is a huge component of any big exit plan. And I think that's where um, you know somebody like yourself can really come in and add value to these transactions from the uh, you know the initial planning stage all the way through the closing and the sure, papering sure. of the and, deal. And you know, you asked that on our pre-call, and and so you know, the reality of it is is you know, look, the sooner that people get involved in the process with their attorneys and their CPAs and everybody and engage their team, because everybody has a specific function and a lens of which they look through the transaction at, right? Mm -hmm. the CPA looks at it through their lens, the attorney through their lens. I have my own perspective and how I view it. You have the things you want to know. So the sooner we're all kind of looking at it from our own perspective and sharing that information, because I mean, I have had CPAs that, um, 
that have said no to deals before because, um, you know, the way that they portrayed it to the client was, hey, you're, you're not going to have enough income to live on after you sell this business, right? From whatever mm-hmm. assets left over, you're not going to be able to maintain your current lifestyle if you sell this business, right? Right. I've, I've also had CPAs and attorneys I know that have told people not to sell businesses because I know they would have lost a substantial client had they have sold that business that's and they true. didn't want to lose that client for those particular reasons, right? Yeah. Now, that's the wrong reason. Now, I'm not telling you they're all bad, but I'm saying these are conversations that need to be had sooner than later. And, you know, if your counsel is telling you that, you know, and you're not sure you're on the fence, don't wait till the last minute and have that dropped on you like a bomb, you know, go go talk about people beforehand. So, right. Yeah. And I would say, you know, the main reason that a business gets sold is uh, it's really a lifestyle choice and whether you're, you're just tired of it and you want to be done or you want to retire or, you know, sickness, divorce, health issues, these people move. Yeah. Uh, these are the reasons these businesses get sold, not for any kind of financial, you know, windfall uh, because there's, you know, there are other options. You can always hire a manager um, yeah. and just collect the checks on a monthly basis. So kind of getting to that reason and uh, understanding uh, what's driving the decision is always a big part of, uh, you know, really doing what's best for the client. Sure. And look, this isn't a plug about me, but this is something we talked about on pre-call that, you know, what we do on the back end is these clients always have three primary concerns. Maybe it's all three, maybe it's one of three, but what do I do with the money if I sell? You know, where do I put it? I can't just leave it in a bank account. It's not going to do me any good there. You know, how do I generate income from whatever this particular asset is? And because we live on income, not assets. And then how do I mitigate taxes in a substantial way? And what I've found in my experience being involved in these transactions is when you can help a seller understand how to mitigate whatever those fears are out of that, out of that, those pieces. If they can feel comfortable with what that is, it helps the transaction be more seamless. It minimizes the friction in a substantial way for them understanding what it's going to look like on the other side of that sale. Definitely. And you know, the, the client has spent their whole career building their business and they're an expert in running the business, but they're not really a financial advisor and working with other professionals that have put the same kind of effort into becoming you know, excellent at what they do is uh, I think a huge plus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's great to spend time with you. You know, I know everybody in the healthcare field knows when they're sick that they need to go to a very specific type doctor, right? Mm -hmm. To solve that, whatever that type of sickness is, you know, but I don't think that everybody realizes that there's business brokers out there that specializes in understanding the type of business that you have and knows how to maximize the value of it and looks at it that way from an opportunistic standpoint, right? Exactly. And I think knowing that and knowing that there's people that understand not only how to sell a business, but understand my specific vertical and how that applies is extremely valuable. So, um, you know, I'm sure there's some software people looking to exit that are looking for you. That'd be great. Talk to <laughs> Good stuff. Well, David, I appreciate the time today. Any closing thoughts, throw it out there. And if not, just let everybody know how to find you. How would we find you? You know, social media, websites, tell us how we'd find you. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Matt, again, for inviting me. It's been great to participate in your podcast. Uh, if anybody wanted to get in touch with me, um, I'm at davidjacobsbusinessbroker.com or you can um, uh, email me uh, david.jacobs at linkbusiness.com. Um, my phone number is 415-297-8562. Sounds good. David, I appreciate you. Thanks for so much for being on the show. Okay. Thank you, Matt. You got it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 